Well, good morning and happy Easter. You know, there's a real sense in which this is hopefully the strangest Easter that we will ever experience. Uh, I am actually this morning preaching, of course, to an empty room, uh, something that I never thought that would happen on an Easter Sunday. And as we think about it, we, we're quarantined to our homes. And with Roma roaming freely and the death tolls rising, there's a real sense of uncertainty rather than celebration for many on Easter Sunday. Now, there's this pervasive uncertainty that has arisen over fears, fears over sickness and death, jobs, retirements, friends, a lack of vaccines, and, and the list goes on and on. You know, we can't even trust in the certainty of taxes or the U.S. mail in this season. And so many of these things feel like they're uncertain and up in the air. And yet, I believe that we might be uniquely positioned this Sunday morning of all Sunday mornings, this Easter of Easter's, to actually be able to look at and behold and understand the experience of two eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus Christ, Cleopas and his friend, who we find in Luke chapter 24. We're going to call them Team Cleopas, so I don't have to say Cleopas and his friend every time. And what we find here is this amazing testimony of two individuals who actually walk and talk with the resurrected Lord, not even knowing it. Now, if you are just picking up in Luke's gospel, you know that Luke wrote his gospel for the purpose of actually giving certainty according to the things, a a phrase that he uses throughout his book, the things which he saw or which he has eyewitnesses accounts of. He's writing this to Theophilus, a friend of God. And he wants him to have a kind of certainty amidst uncertain times. And he is recording for him the events surrounding the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, Team Cleopas needed hope amidst the terrors of their lives on Easter morning. And they got exactly what we need this morning, which is the resurrected Christ. And that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. Now, you'll remember that Luke is that beloved physician who has written this gospel for the purpose of giving us certainty in uncertain times. And what we find is a very interesting way that he ramps up the story of the resurrection beginning in Luke 24. He starts off with the testimony of these women, Mary Magdalene and the others, who came and they found the empty tomb. And in its place, they found two angels who told them that they were looking in the wrong place. If they were looking for someone who is dead, they would find him there. But Jesus was living. And it's in, those, in that moment that the women are confused. Now, here's what's fascinating in this story. The angels are surprised at how blind the women are to the events that they are looking at happening right before them. In fact, they reminded them of a teaching that they heard from Jesus' mouth himself back in Luke 9, 22. You'll remember there that after he breaks bread and feeds 5,000, he then receives the testimony of Peter that Jesus is the Christ, and he goes on to remind them in that moment explicitly, he says, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day and rise. These angels are looking at these women and they say, okay, check your sundial real quick. What day is it? It's the third day, and the tomb's empty. And you remember what Jesus said. And and I can imagine that they're still looking at him like, "Uh uh-huh, so? But what we find here in this text is this incredible reality that happens throughout. It is that 
what they see with their physical eyes didn't bring immediate spiritual sight. So that they are looking at things physically. They are witnessing events, but they are struggling to connect them with the spiritual realities that Jesus told them they would be connected to. And so this morning, if you're taking notes, our big idea is this. That God gives miraculous spiritual sight through the ordinary means of the preaching of Christ and the breaking of bread. That's right. God gives miraculous sight through the ordinary means of the preaching of Christ and the breaking of bread. As we begin, I want to pray for us that the Holy Spirit would help us to understand this word from God. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we come before you and we ask, Father, that you would help us by the power of your Spirit to have eyes to see and ears to hear. Father, we know that Apart from you and a, a miraculous work of you in our hearts, we cannot see you as you are. We cannot see the excellencies and glories that are laid up for us in Christ. And so this morning, God, we ask, Father, would you please bestow on your children rich grace? And those who are far from you, Lord, would they, in this moment, throughout this sermon, be given eyes to see your son as he is? And it's a great number of your son that we do pray. Amen. Well, the first thing that we're going to notice in this text, in the first few verses, is two hopeless witnesses cannot see. We have two hopeless witnesses who cannot see. Uh, you'll notice that our verses in verse 13, it begins with this little phrase, that very day. Of course, that very day is speaking to verses 1 to 12 that precedes it, where the women have just seen and heard the report of the empty tomb and that Jesus is alive. That's where this day picks up. Uh, notice what it says, though, in verses 13 to verses 16. Here's what Luke records for us, God's Word. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. It's about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with one another about the things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Take note, these two witnesses are moving in the wrong direction. They have just been in Jerusalem where Jesus has died and there's testimony that he has been raised from the dead and they are moving away. We'll see that they've heard the report of an empty tomb, yet they are seven miles from Jerusalem. If they believed Jesus was alive, they'd still be in Jerusalem. And they would not be sad, but here they are sad seven miles from hope and still on the move. Notice that they are talking to each other about the things that happened. Now, they just experienced this dramatic reversal. In a Passover week that began with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem with the cries of Hosanna, but it ended with the cries of crucify him at the cross. That's a startling shift 
of events. And these two were likely part of this larger group of Jesus' followers outside of the eleven who had followed him for three and a half years experiencing these things. Verse 18 names one of them, Cleopas, as we'll see in a minute. Now, it's interesting, Kent Hughes, as he looks at this, says that this is likely Clopas from John 19.25, where he's mentioned with his wife Mary. And so he assumes, or he asserts that this is perhaps Mary and Cleopas. Maybe, we can't be sure, but what we can be sure of is that these devoted followers of Jesus assumed that when Jesus said, it is finished, he was actually saying, Jesus is finished. But that was not the message of the cross. And as they walked away, they sought to make sense of all the things that they had seen. Now, just to be fair, no one really questions Jesus' death or the empty tomb. But, but I'm sure that these two considered some of the alternative explanations that many of us still will hear today. So you'll remember that some have, have said that it was the Romans who actually took and hid the body. But you have to ask yourself, why would Romans give fuel to the fire that Jesus fulfilled the promise that he was raised from the dead? And the same could be said of those who say that it was the Jewish leaders. Why would the Jewish leaders take and hide the body? And then as his followers began to become excited about the truth and the reliability of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what that meant for them, why would they not say, hey guys, we, we took the body. Uh, we were hoping that that would mean that you would be done and would not believe, but because you do, oh, here he is. Now, others said that dogs ate the body. Now, of course, I mean, that, that doesn't work with your teacher and your history homework. It doesn't doesn't really fit here either. And how could a body whom everybody has their eyes on be lost or given up to dogs? There's been a, a more recent claim about the nature of these resurrection sightings. Uh, Anthony Flew, a famed agnostic, actually argued that he's the evidence, he's seen the evidence, the certain evidence that there was an empty tomb. And that as many as 500 people at one time saw Jesus Christ raised from the dead, just as 1 Corinthians 15 says. And in light of the preponderance of evidence, he concludes that those 500 people must have had a mass hallucination. Now, it's easy to move quickly from the empty tomb to celebrating the resurrection, especially on Easter. But I want you to notice that in Luke's gospel, he doesn't move quickly. He, he draws it out. It's not that they see the empty tomb and they directly and immediately say, Jesus has been raised. He wants to show that there is uncertainty and doubt and fear. In fact, throughout Luke, Luke 1 says that Luke is giving us an eyewitness account of the things that you might have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And Luke says, as he's trying to give Theophilus certainty, there were eyewitnesses that look blind throughout. Do you see the brutal honesty of this? The first eyewitnesses were scared, confused, and they didn't believe the first reports that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Now think about it. In Luke 9, after blessing the loaves and, and giving the bread out to 5,000, uh, remember that Jesus says, who do you say? People say that I am. Some say Elijah, other prophets. And Peter says, but we say that you are God's Christ. 
And immediately after that, Jesus jumps into telling them, well, let me tell you about God's Christ. He is going to have to suffer and die and be raised on the third day from the dead. Yet here we find Team Cleopas, seven miles from Jerusalem, looking as perplexed as the women and the disciples who all walked and talked with Jesus for three and a half years. Do you see how blind these witnesses look? Jesus laid out his mission time and time again for his followers. And all those events, they happened exactly according to plan. And yet his followers look like they have forgotten Jesus' words at every step. The witnesses look blind. This is important. The Bible shows this throughout. Physical sight does not ensure spiritual sight. So if you're thinking, if you saw a miracle, then you would believe the truth. The Bible says, not necessarily. You'll notice that here, Jesus, literally in this scene, jogs up beside them and begins to talk to them, and they don't recognize him. Now, you've heard it said that seeing is believing, but here they see, but they still don't believe. And in this moment, I I love the picture that we have of Jesus. He is running after hopeless people who have walked away from him. Isn't he the good shepherd that we find in the scriptures? The one who comes after lost, hopeless sheep. But why does he look different to them? Why do they not recognize him? Is his form changed or was he incognito? Was he disguised? Well, no, verse 16 tells us why. It says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Who was keeping their eyes, covering them so they could not see Jesus for who he was? Well, this is what scholars call a divine passive. What that means is it it is pointing to the reality that, that God kept their eyes from recognizing Jesus. So these guys, they are seven miles from hope and helpless in seeking Jesus. Why? Jesus says it is because God has kept their eyes from being able to see him. See, Jesus shows the miracle of faith comes through the ordinary means of preaching in verses 17 to 27. And the breaking of bread in verses 28 to 35. Those are the ways that he is going to make himself known to them. The resurrected Christ is going to preach the word and then commune with his people. Uh, Notice, second, the spiritually blind need to hear Christ preach in verses 17 to 27. They need to hear Christ preach. See, these disciples are sad as they walk and talk about Jesus. When Jesus jogs up in verse 17 and he asks them, hey guys, what's going on? Talking about Jesus, Jesus shows up, and I love Cleopas' response in verse 18. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem, who does not know the things that have happened here in these days. See, Jesus, he isn't a visitor. He's God's king in God's city. And he's the only one in all of Jerusalem who actually knows the things that have happened there in these days. But catch the response to Jesus. When he asks, what things? In verses 19 to 24, we see a couple of things. First, notice that Team Cleopas can't see because they lack faith. Team Cleopas, they can't see because they lack faith. Uh, If you'll look with me, beginning there in verse 
19. It says this. Concerning Jesus of Nazareth. You want to know what things? The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth. A man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went up to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Don't miss this. They didn't just follow Jesus' crucifixion and his death and his placing in the empty tomb and the discovery of this empty tomb. They didn't just follow these details on CNN or some kind of Facebook or Twitter feed. They were there, these two, for the whole show. They, They saw the events with their very eyes. They heard the reports and testimonies of witnesses they walked with for years. And yet in this moment, they are walking away from Jerusalem, sad and hopeless, unable to believe that Jesus Christ literally did what he promised to do, which is to be raised from the dead on the third day. Even as they speak the gospel to Jesus, they can't understand the words and the meaning of the words. In fact, we're not enough where faith was lacking. You know, unbelief here in this text, you'll notice, is spiritual blindness. The the problem is with their hearts. That's why they can't see Jesus right in front of their faces. It is because of their faith. They lack the faith. They can't trust the facts because they don't trust Jesus. And Jesus promised to be raised on the third day. His body is gone. They are sad. The problem isn't with the facts but their faith. But catch Jesus' response to these hopelessly sad, spiritually blind unbelievers in verses 25 to 27. Here's how he addresses them. Here's Jesus' response. In these verses, you might expect that Jesus would quickly pivot and give a a sort of second experience of the transfiguration. Let me show you my glory. But he doesn't. I almost want Jesus to call down the legion of angels and say, look what I can do. But he doesn't. No, the, the two things that he does stand out to me because of the, the ordinariness of it. I mean, notice in verses 25 to 27, what happens couple fascinating things here. See, Jesus responds to these spiritually blind, hopelessly sad disciples who have abandoned him, and notice what happens. First, you can see the facts with your physical eyes and still be spiritually blind. That's what Jesus says. You can see the facts with your physical eyes and still be spiritually blind. Uh, Notice what he says in verse 25b. He says, he begins his first part of this saying, and he says this, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. He doesn't question what they've seen. He questions what they believe. 
He questions their hearts. Now, don't misunderstand me. Jesus says the problem is not with their physical eyes, but their spiritual eyes. The problem isn't with the the facts that they've witnessed, but with their faith. I'm not saying that facts are an enemy of faith. I'm reminded here of a scene from that great uh, religious movie, Nacho Libre. Uh, not, not really. Uh, it's not a documentary. Um, but Nacho Libre is this story uh, where you have a, a man who says he's a man of faith, a monk who is uh, entered in this friendship with a guy named Escalito who is not a believer, and he keeps on approaching him with his need to do spiritual things. And finally, one day, Escalito gets fed up. And he says, I don't know why you always have to be judging me because I only believe in science. Escalito says in this statement something I believe very profound. He's basically saying, I believe that he's a scientist who trusts the facts over faith as though they are separate things, as though faith is separated from fact. He, like many others, believed that if he merely saw the things, could test the things, could taste, see, hear the things, that he, like Thomas, who touched the wounds of Jesus, would believe. Now, if that's you, Luke says, you overestimate your ability to see spiritually. And you underestimate your desperate need for God to do a miracle in your heart. See, Christian faith doesn't require less than facts. It requires more. It requires faith, a faith that is a gift of God. See, these disciples can't make sense of what they've seen with their senses and their eyes. Did you catch what Jesus said? Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. Now, fools in proverbial language are those who ignore the fear of the Lord. Uh, They are those who do not believe God's word. They are living in God's creation without submitting to God. They reject knowledge. They reject wisdom. And here he says that is exactly what these disciples look like. Those who are numb to God. They despise the light of God's knowledge and wisdom and choose to live in darkness And the problem with these spiritually blind, hopeless disciples isn't physical, it's noumenal. The problem isn't optical, it's spiritual. The problem isn't with their eyes, it's with their hearts. The problem isn't they lack facts, they lack faith. Now don't miss this, just think about it. Famed investigative reporter Lee Strobel. We have two men who do not believe God when they start the process of investigating the facts. Famed investigator reporter Lee Strobel was formerly an unbeliever. And he decided that he would investigate the facts of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And and he did so. And on the other end of it, he actually came to faith because of the uh, amount of facts that were given to the reality of Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Anthony Flew, famed agnostic, did the very same kind of project where he decided that he was going to look at the facts of the resurrection. And he concluded that he believes that the tomb was empty 
And that many, many people, hundreds of people, you can't ignore the evidence that they believe that they saw a man who was dead, raised from the dead, walking around, eating, talking, teaching, and interacting with other people. But he didn't respond with faith in the way that Lee Strobel did. In fact, Flew claimed it was a mass hallucination. Now here's the reality. The likelihood of a mass hallucination is far less likely than that 500 witnesses saw a man raised from the dead. The the probabilities are just out of the park like ridiculous. People don't have mass hallucinations. In fact, crazy is that you're seeing something that others don't. And to have 500 people do that simultaneously is unheard of. Now here's the reality. The likelihood of that is so unbelievable. See, if you think the resurrection takes faith, I think a mass hallucination takes way more faith. And what did Anthony Flew miss? Well, Paul, Luke's friend, writes this in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 to 4. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 to 4, Paul says this, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. They can't see it. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He has hidden from them. He has blinded them to the glorious reality of who Jesus is. They can't see the most beautiful thing in all of creation, things seen and unseen. Spiritually blind people, like these disciples, miss Jesus as the Christ in the whole Bible. And how the whole Bible anticipated Jesus as the Christ. So you'll notice in verses 25 to 27, Jesus points them to himself in the Bible. Notice what he says in verses 25 to 27. Again, he says the whole Bible is about the Christ suffering and entering into glory. You'll notice that Jesus points them here to the Old Testament to show them this reality. And here's what he says again in verses 25 to 27. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I don't miss this. Jesus is pointing these unbelievers who literally can't recognize Jesus as they are gazing at him eyeball to eyeball towards how all of the scriptures, the Old Testament, points to Jesus as the Christ. Jesus is teaching them, and they don't even know it's Jesus. How blind do you have to be to have walked and talked with Jesus and yet sit there under his teaching three days later after his death and not know that it's him? See, Jesus models for us in this moment how we are to bring unbelievers to himself. He didn't transfigure. He didn't call down a legion of angels. He gave us the resources that he has left us with the preaching of Christ. He doesn't perform another miracle. He shows them Christ in the Old Testament. You know, one of the main jobs of pastors is to protect and to promote the gospel. That's what we do at Trinity Bible Church. We look to protect the gospel and promote it. 
And I want to protect you from a teaching and lots of teachings that are kind of like a guy named Andy Stanley who pastors a 15,000-member church called North Point and who out, Outreach Magazine recently called one of the 10 top influencers of the church today. He recently wrote a book called Irresistible where he is writing about the Old Testament. And he says, if you want to reach non-Christians, if you want to reach people for Christ, then you need to unhitch from the Old Testament and be stripped of old covenant leftovers that only left us down, divides us up, and confuses those standing from the outside peering in. He's saying that if you preach from the Old Testament, you, you are going to lose people. Let me ask you, does the resurrected Jesus Christ raised from the dead unhitch himself from the Old Testament and say, you know, now that I've been raised from the dead, you can throw your Old Testament away. You don't need those scrolls anymore. Or does Jesus tell Team Cleopas, the Old Testament will hinder you from the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ? Absolutely not. It's actually quite the opposite as we see Jesus speaking to them. Jesus doesn't avoid the Old Testament. He pummels right into it and meticulously shows them how he had to suffer, die, and be raised. And this is all because all of the promises of God find their yes in him being Jesus. Now take note. A resurrected Lord says spiritually blind, hopelessly lost unbelievers. They need to see Jesus in all of the Bible. That's what we need. I love what John Calvin wrote in 1535 in his preface to his cousin's French translation of the Bible from Hebrew and Greek. He, he writes this in the pre preface, and I think so often when we come to our Bible, we, we come with this sense of me, me, me. But as we find John Calvin talking about the Bible, he says, catch this, this Bible isn't really about me. It has to do with me. The most important things for me are in this book. But this Bible ultimately is not about me, it's about he, Jesus and as you read through Calvin's preface, I love how he continually writes, he, 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 Jesus Christ is the point of the whole Bible. Jesus Christ is the hero of our story. He writes this, he, Christ is Isaac, the beloved son of the father who was offered as a sacrifice, but nevertheless did not succumb to the power of death. He is the good and compassionate brother Joseph, who in his glory was not ashamed to acknowledge his brothers, however lowly and abject their condition. He is a great sacrifice and Bishop Melchizedek, who was offered an eternal sacrifice once for all. Jesus is the sovereign lawgiver, Moses, writing his law on the tablets of our hearts by his spirit. He is the faithful captain and guide, Joshua, to lead us to our promised land. He is the victorious, victorious and noble King David, bringing by his hand all rebellious power to subjection. Jesus is the magnificent and triumphant King Solomon, governing his kingdom in peace and prosperity. He is the strong and powerful Samson, who by his death was overwhelmed all of his enemies. This is what we should, in short, seek in the whole of Scripture. Truly to know Jesus Christ and the infinite riches that are compared and comprised in him and are offered to us 
by him from God the Father. If one were to sift through the law and the prophets, he would not find a single word which would not draw and bring us to him. Therefore, rightly does St. Paul say in another passage that he would not know anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we could go through the Bible and we could explore all of the ways that we see Jesus Christ pointed to. So many different ways. We've done that elsewhere. We do that all the time. We could spend all Sunday on this. But for now, would you take note that this is exactly the way that Peter preached at Pentecost? You'll remember that it was at Pentecost that Peter shows up. Jesus, after 40 days on earth, ascends to heaven, and then he sends his spirit to his people. And when his spirit descends, what we find is, is that Peter begins to preach. And what is he preaching from but the Old Testament? Texts like Psalm 110 or Joel 2, 228 to 32. And he is showing how the Spirit has indeed been poured out on all flesh by Jesus Christ their Lord. And you'll remember that in Luke 2:32, he writes these words. He says, The Father has poured out the Holy Spirit so that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. You needed the Spirit to see and to hear, and to understand. This is exactly the way that God has chosen to work amongst his people. See, spiritually blind people need spiritually alive people to show them Jesus in all of the Bible. And I believe here in Luke, what we find is a pointing forward to the expectation of the disciples at Pentecost when they received the Holy Spirit that gave them the ability to see. Their hearts burned as they waited for that law to be graven on their hearts by the Spirit that they might see Jesus for who Jesus is. That's why in Romans 10, 17, we find that Paul says people must hear the gospel to believe. They must hear Christ. He says faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But Jesus doesn't just preach. Notice he also breaks bread with them. In verses 28 to 35. In fact, Jesus breaks bread and their eyes, their eyes are opened. So catch this. The three approach Emmaus as night falls. They still don't know that this is Jesus. And they show hospitality to him. And they ask him to, to break bread with them. And the story picks up in verses 30 to 35. And this is what it says. It says, when he was at a table with them, He took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while we talked? He talked to us on the road while he opened up to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour. And catch this, they returned to Jerusalem. Hope was back. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed. And he appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now you'll notice a number of things here. I've got time for two really quickly. First, did you notice that the divine passive shows up again in verse 31? Jesus blesses the bread, and then we are told, And their eyes were 
opened. Who opened their eyes? Well, they were opened by God. See, I think that what Luke wants us to see is that we're not as autonomous as we want to think we are. We needed help from above. We needed God himself. We needed the Holy Spirit to come and give us eyes to see. You know, left to ourselves, our minds are veiled. And we have a spiritual enemy who seeks to veil humanity to the glorious riches of Jesus Christ. And didn't David pray in Psalm 119, 18? Open my eyes. God, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. What's more wondrous than the one to whom the law pointed Jesus who obeyed God in every single way. What about Lydia in Acts 16, 14? Whom Luke says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. And hang with me. In just a few verses, we're told that Jesus is going to visit with the 11 disciples right after this. And he shows them his hands and his feet and as the resurrection is proof that he is alive. And what does he do next after he shows them these things? He has Bible study. He takes them to the Word. He shows them of how the whole Old Testament, from Moses to the prophets, they all point to him. In fact, Luke 24, 45 says that as he does this, I love this phrase, Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Just think about that. Jesus is opening up their minds. God has opened up eyes. Uh, Paul explains this in 2 Corinthians 3.15, where he was talking about that veil that is over our hearts so that we can't truly understand God until we turn to Jesus to understand the scriptures. The Lord, and the veil is removed in Christ. In fact, Paul writes this, in 2 Corinthians 4.16, he says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. That's speaking of creation in Genesis 1.3, that same God that called light to shine out of darkness. He, that same creative God, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. That's the new creation. That's the new birth that we have when we receive the Spirit and He brings us to newness of life. And Paul and others preach that trusting in the promises of God requires a miracle to remove that veil that blinds us to who Jesus is. A second important reality is that it's the ordinary event of preaching and showing hospitality and breaking bread that Jesus made Himself known to others. Did you see that? This breaking of bread seems to look back to Jesus's feeding of the 5,000. In Luke 9, where you'll remember that it was in that that Peter, he, he professes Jesus as the Christ, and then Jesus says, here's the gospel. This is what's going to happen. He does the same thing in Luke 22 when he is at the Lord's Supper with the disciples. He blesses the bread and breaks it. And, and then we find that there is this reality that he is the Christ. And here again, he's with these two hopeless Folks running from Jerusalem, and in that moment, he breaks bread and blesses it, 
and they see Christ. Your faithfulness to the ordinary means of preaching and communion in a local church creates a context in which the Holy Spirit loves to lift the veil of unbelief from hopelessly sad, spiritually blind people to see Christ in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden, including the great hope of Jesus raised from the dead. And after Peter preaches in Acts 2, you remember the Spirit pours out. And what happens when the Spirit pours out? The church springs up. And what do they do? They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, which they got from Jesus, and to the breaking of bread. See, this is where God is going to make himself known. That's the ordinary, fertile field that God delights in doing his supernatural work of drawing people from every tribe and tongue and nation to himself. But how should we live in light of this? Four ways real quickly. First, Christian, know this. You are utterly dependent on Jesus to open your mind to see Jesus. Completely dependent on him. See, faith is is a spiritual thing. We need to pray desperately if we believe this. Every time we open God's word, every time we take up the Bible, we should be looking at this and praying, God, give me eyes to see the glories of Christ. And if you read it and you're thinking, man, I don't get that. I don't understand. I don't see Jesus here. Then find a pastor, find another brother or sister who you respect and say, help me see Christ. And then pray again, Christ, I need to see you in all of the Bible. And trust me, the Holy Spirit who inspired this book for the purpose of driving us, pointing us towards its climax and its culmination, which is Jesus, wants to drive us and show us who Jesus is. So let me just ask you this. When you are coming to the Bible, either individually or corporately, are you doing so as someone who is desperately in need of the help of God to see Jesus. See, we need to come desperate when we come to the word of God. When we gather together, when we pray, we need to come prayed up. Are we living as desperately, are we living a desperately righteous life? We, we fall, we stumble, we trip, but we, do we really understand that the Holy Spirit wants us to follow Jesus in every way. And if we are not following Jesus, do we understand that that is compromising our ability to see the most glorious being in all of creation, Jesus Christ, who is the very image of the invisible God? Man, I want to be righteous when I know that it means me getting to see Jesus. Or are you settling for the veil and happy with being blind to the glories that God has made you to see? See, the Spirit leads us to be holy and happy, and that joy centers on a person. It's not me, it's Jesus Christ being known more and more to us now, and I believe for eternity. Second, Christian, why do you need to tell, who do you need to tell that Jesus is risen today? Who do you need to tell? Are you praying for them? Are you praying that God would give opportunities for you to witness to Christ To them, you know, one of the things that I I often do if I feel like I have not got an opportunity to share Christ with somebody in a while, I actually will pray, God, will you please give me just like a a witnessing opportunity for dummies? 
because I, I just, I'm not seeing it. Maybe it's there and I'm missing it. Well, you make it so obvious that I can't miss it. And I can't tell you how many times I've had people actually come up to me and say, what's your job? I'm a pastor. Oh, so like, what does that mean? What do you do? I'm like, oh, well, all right, God. I, I talk about Jesus. I talk about the fact that man is, is sinful and in need. There is nothing more glorious than Christ. Let me tell you about this Jesus that I know. I can't tell you how many times the Lord has done that. So who are you praying for? Who is it that you believe is unreachable? Who is it that you believe is so far from God that they can't believe? Catch this. If this is true, then anybody can see whom Jesus gives eyes to see to. There is no one that is safe from seeing Jesus. Love that. So who are you looking to tell about Jesus being risen today? Third, church, I've had a lot of people talk about how we've made the assembly too important. And and maybe this thing that's happened amongst us, this virus is in part God's judgment on the church to say, hey, don't make gathering together as a local church such a big deal. I, I don't think that's at all what God does. I don't think he says, do not forsake the assembling together of yourselves and then creates an environment where, oh, hey, you are like being too obedient to that. No, I, I think that God wants us in this season to long to gather in the ordinary ways that he calls his people to and to love one another as we protect and promote the gospel of a savior who died and was raised. Don't underestimate the value of gathering. And pray to that end. Pray that God would let us be unleashed to gather again for the glory of God. And not only that, pray for other churches, churches in China and other regions where they are not allowed to gather to the glory of God. And praise and thank God that he gives us the kind of freedom that we can gather together to practice our spiritual gifts and build up the church to the glory of his name. And finally, if you don't believe in Jesus, know this, your lack of belief isn't just because of the facts. You need Jesus to help you believe. See, I believe eternity is in your heart. I believe that's true of every human. They've been created with the sense that they were made, and they were made as beings that image God, and they were made with a hope and a realization that life is very brief. Life is very short. And I believe you know that. And the purpose of Jesus Christ raised from the dead is to remind you that you need to reckon with God and come to Christ. Ask Christ to open your eyes. I want to close with a quick illustration I got from a a brother who shared his testimony with one time, more glorious than I can really give detail to this morning. But I have a blind friend who shared his testimony about how he had lived a life of just indulging in sin and his own passions for decades. He had a great job. He had everything this world had to offer. He tasted, he he loved it, he enjoyed it. But as his sight began to fade, his physical sight, he started going to church where he heard Christ preach and he began to see himself differently as a, a sinner in need of a Savior. He was a sinner who saw the way that the church loved each other. And he knew that was an otherworldly kind of love that he hadn't tasted before. And he began to hear testimonies of a a Christ who was raised from the dead. 
who reigned in glory, who would love and save him and give him a new identity. And he believed. And as he gave his life to Christ, afterwards, many years, I met with him, and he concluded this testimony by saying, it took me becoming physically blind for me to be able to see spiritually. And Jesus is completely worth it. Friend, let me tell you that if you don't know this Jesus, whatever it is that you see with your eyes that you're living for, if God were to take that vision away from you and leave you with nothing but Jesus, it would be more than worth everything that you've lost. Let's pray.